The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. This week I want to talk about a place, a building that's right at the heart of the New Zealand psyche, the New Zealand dream. And that's the villa or the bungalow in one of our biggest cities. One of the first things I ever wrote, actually, was a lifestyle column for Mass University student magazine called Chaff. It was a weekly column about living in a student flat in Palmerston North in one of these old villas, but not in the nice kind, not like one of those ones you see in the ads these days of the young couple starting their lives in this beautiful, perfectly heat-pumped and insulated villa with the backyard and the barbecue and the boat and the double-cab ute. No, this was the one with the black mould and the holes in the floor and the poor insulation, uh, which, you know, we've got a lot of those houses left in New Zealand, standalone, single-storey houses on quite big sections, often with a lot of overgrown stuff out the back, quite close to town that could easily be redeveloped. And this key part of the New Zealand psyche, that key point of conflict now between a generation who want affordable, often small apartments, townhouses, people who want those sections developed. And we had the big conflict during 2016 with the Auckland Unitary Plan, which we've talked about in previous When the Facts Change episodes, a moment when it looked like a bunch of those uh, single-house villa bungalow suburbs like Ponsonby, Grayland, Mount Eden were going to be redeveloped into apartments. It turned out some streets were, but the bulk of those suburbs managed to avoid the planner's pen and haven't been redeveloped. They were excluded from the unitary plan. Well, the conflict's not going away, and now the government, over the last couple of years, has been pushing with its national policy statement for urban development to get a lot more of these apartments and townhouses built. And it's a constant point of conflict now at councils. you got the old leafies in the suburbs, the NIMBYs, who do not want that large townhouse or apartment building built next to them, blocking out the sun for their backyard perfection, their dream, even though the kids may well have long gone from home and they're hardly ever out the back with the barbecue. Uh, they certainly like having the boat in the driveway next to the house and the idea of their perfect suburban bliss of tree-lined streets with single houses changing into a place full of apartments and townhouses is just, just not up their street. That's why so many fought so hard to keep those inner-city suburbs, those leafy suburbs, free of the apartments and the townhouses. But the debate is still there because we obviously haven't built enough houses. We're still at least 100,000 houses short, and the price of houses keeps on rising. The pressure has gotten so much that something really unusual happened this week. Both the National Party and the Labour Party came together to do something politically painful for both of their voter bases. They decided to effectively change the RMA to make all of those sections with those villas and 
bungalows able to be bold and redeveloped as three-storey, three-home townhouse developments. Every single one of them. And it's not like you can object to the environment court and make sure that everything is notified and bog this down in years of legal action. No, this change, agreed by National Labor, means all of those sections can be redeveloped, unless there's something really, really special about them. Those character overlays used with unitary plans and district plans to essentially ban development of those suburbs, they can't be applied anymore. You can use some heritage rules, you know, the Catherine Mansfield House in Wellington isn't going to be bold, but a regular old villa, particularly one of those old moldy ones, that can be bold. And of course, it's pretty attractive for those people who've managed to buy a house 20 years ago for a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and now they're sitting on a house and section worth a couple of million dollars, and maybe even they could uh, sell it to a developer who sells three $2 million townhouses and makes a bunch of money, or maybe the homeowner themselves puts a nice big townhouse out the back for their kids and a granny flat for... Uh, the in-laws. Um, so there's potential there for building up to 100,000 houses in the next eight years, according to PwC and Sense Partners in a big report that came out with this announcement. This is really unusual, this sort of thing. The last time it happened was in 2007 when John Key and Helen Clark came together to push through the anti-smacking legislation. It proved that John Key could appeal to the middle of the electorate and bring along a, an unhappy caucus to do something that not all of their voters would want. It gave air cover to Labour to move ahead with it, knowing that they weren't going to be beaten up in the polls. And so this is a big deal. And there have been a few of them in the past that we may have forgotten, but actually have big influences on our lives now. Firstly, the RMA itself. Back in 1989, it was passed essentially by National and Labor together to try and ensure that um, state organisations and powerful bodies couldn't essentially run roughshod over the, the neighbours and the local community and build something big and ugly. Unfortunately, it was used as a weapon to stop any development, even the, the development of affordable housing. And so now the consensus is to essentially gut a part of the RMA as it applies to people in cities. Now, that all sounds great, doesn't it? And there's a lot of celebration. We had Generation Zero and Renters United come out and say, finally, we're going to get some houses built close to town, affordable houses. Well, a $2 million townhouse might not be quite so affordable, but it does add to total supply and will make it easier for some of these different types of houses to be built that might be more affordable. However, the one thing missing in the announcement this week about a cross-party consensus on allowing a lot more development of these inner-city suburbs is the missing link of infrastructure funding. Now, you may argue, well, surely if it's intensification of an existing suburb, um, you know, there's no need to lay big new pipes or big new power lines or big new roads. Well, that's mostly true, and certainly it's a more efficient way to expand is to densify your existing suburban areas. But uh, it's quite likely in some areas you will have to beef up your uh, pipes and your roads and your parks because if you go from 30 houses to 90 houses, that's a lot more cars driving around trying to park. That's a lot more need for buses, for trains, for cycleways, for pathways. There will have to be investment to make sure that that all works. Otherwise, it gets ugly at a local level. 
And the question is, will the government and councils expand their balance sheets, effectively take on debt to invest in assets for future generations? It's something that democracies are not very good at, us in particular, but all around the world. Western democracies have struggled to invest in infrastructure for the last 30 or 40 years, in part because voters and owners of today's assets don't like spending some of their money, their precious money that could be given back to them in the form of tax cuts, don't like spending it on big, chunky assets, often called white elephants, that they don't like. And um, the best example, the most recent one, of course, was the second harbour bridge for cyclists and pedestrians that lasted about three weeks, that idea. And, you know, there are lots of others. The previous national government's opposition to the city rail link lasted for almost a decade before finally the pressure became too great and the government did use its balance sheet to help get that built. The central interceptor, the big, big pipe, which is currently being dug right across Auckland, that again needed a lot of pressure and eventually the government to agree to use its balance sheet. And the problem here is the Public Finance Act, which was another one of these uh, consensus deals between National and Labour in 1989, the Public Finance Act effectively forces our government and through our government councils to ensure they keep repaying debt during normal times. They're either running surpluses or balances. They can't use the Crown's balance sheet to smooth the cost out over decades and decades. So these big chunky infrastructure projects, and we're seeing them like the city rail link right now, uh, like the need for a, uh, a rail link out to the airport or the need for a second harbour crossing. These sorts of things cost billions of dollars right now. You can choose to spend them out of um, normal incoming taxes. Uh, that would be difficult. Or you can choose to borrow money from investors around the world and here and then smear the cost out over many decades. But unfortunately, the Public Finance Act forces governments, both local and central, to not use their balance sheets to do exactly that, to spread the cost out over many generations. And the result over the last 30 years has been an $80 billion infrastructure deficit and all the problems we know about, including a lack of housing and a really poor response on dealing with climate change. The question is now, Will this intervention this week, this new big pipe bipartisan deal, will it make a difference on housing? It may make some difference to see a lot more of these uh, suburban, single-storey, single-dwelling sections developed, but not of the sort of scale that's necessary and not of the type necessarily that are necessary. To do that, you need to change the Public Finance Act and allow governments to use the Crown's balance sheet over many generations to solve these problems. Democracies just aren't very good at this. Politicians, understandably, and most voters have a very short-term view of the world. They want tax cuts now. They don't want to invest their money in assets that someone else's grandkids could use in the future. Autocracies, monarchies, have a much more uh, longer-term view of the world for good and bad reasons. Um, good reasons, perhaps, if you're a good monarch and you think your grandkids are still going to be in charge, you're quite happy to invest the money in the long run. Or maybe you don't care about what voters think and you just want to build uh, a really 
big uh, totem to yourself, which might happen to be a, a big bridge or a railway or whatever it is. And if you're a dictator, you love building these big projects, again, for the same reasons, and you don't have to worry about being re-elected. That's why China has been so good at infrastructure investment over the last 20 years or so. That's what we're talking about this week. We're going to talk to a couple of these politicians making these sorts of decisions in the political economy who've been pushing for these sorts of infrastructure investments and the sort of affordable housing we need. They're happy about this big news this week. And we'll also talk to an economist from Kiwi Bank to understand what is needed more widely in terms of infrastructure and the potential effect on the housing market of all of these new three-storey townhouses on sections that used to have one house. And we'll talk about what's needed in the long run to make one of these bipartisan deals work and how that central element of our national psyche, a villa on a section in a suburb close to town, faces some change. Now we hear from Wellington City Councillor Tamitha Paul, who's been at the heart of a group of councillors driving for lots more houses to be built in Wellington. So what did you think of the deal? Basically, I've been really worried about our district plan that we're about to put out and basically the fact that we have a massive undersupply of housing and our plan doesn't quite address how we're going to make up that shortfall. And so when I heard about the announcement that was coming, I was really stoked because we need all the help that we can get. So this is great. We need more of this, more acceleration to bring it into effect a lot quicker and just get as much development as we can get. You mentioned your district plan. I mean, what is it in the district plan that these changes would potentially uh, alter? For me, it's about making building housing a lot easier, and that's what this does. It will mean massive changes for the city. It will mean that this kind of development will become the norm, um, and I think people will be super keen to do that without having to yeah, jump through all those hoops because that's kind of one of the big things that I hear is that people don't even want to touch Wellington because they just know that we have one of the most complex and disabling regulatory environments in the country, if not in the world, to be honest. So I love it. So at the moment, it's it's quite difficult to you know build a townhouse or a set of apartments in those inner suburbs such as Mount Victoria, uh, Thorndon, Newtown, Mount Cook. How would this these sets of proposals change that? You know, basically the consent process in itself and those who have the most ability to fight a resource consent are the people who are often holding back development. And so being able to take that process and make it easier for people to develop without having to jump through so many hurdles actually gives more power to those who don't have the resource to fight against those kinds of outcomes. So if there is a process that's in the way of building more houses particularly in these really privileged communities who have not taken development for a long time, that actually takes back some of that power and puts it into the hands of communities that need housing built urgently, that's a big win. So how could councils, you know, work through the back door to stop this from happening? Because they've got quite a good record over the years of, you know, hearing the instructions from the central government and the pleas from young and poorer people saying, please give us housing. And they say, well, well, we can't afford it. You know, we can't afford all these extra pipes and roads and 
and uh, you know our ratepayers won't let us take on extra debt. And then there's the local government funding agency which won't let, won't let us take on debt. So, so you can tell us whatever you want, but we just can't do it. Sorry. Can you think of how the councils could could come back at this? Because it there doesn't seem too many places to hide. Yeah, no, you're right. I think there aren't many places to hide in terms of this. And to me, it's kind of like saying that councils and cities and those tier one authorities have let down the rest of the country because we haven't been keeping up to our growth that we've been having in terms of providing roofs over people's heads. So I guess one thing I am worried about is um, whether there's a big pushback in next year's election. Um, But I think people need to be realistic in that there's nothing that councils can really do to stop this train from moving because this is essentially a consequence of inaction, historic inaction from councils in the first place. So if people want to maintain councils' control over these kinds of things, then we actually need to be team players and not be selfish. There is a risk here that central government says, ah, right, we've now forced the councils to do what they want to do. And um, oh, we're not going to fund the buses and the trains. You know, that's some other problem. Uh, what, what do you say to the government and to National when um, they come to think about how to fund public transport and cycling and walking? Again, very few places to hide behind because the government has put in significant investment into future population growth needs. So, you know, massive investment in mass rapid transit here in Wellington and in Auckland. So a lot of the places where we ex- we can expect to see this intensification will have really good public transport options available to them. I guess the, the NPS, on top of all of that, I think they're painting a picture of what a 21st century New Zealand city will look like. And it doesn't look like what we have known in our history. This is new territory. You know, a comment was made to me by some of our staff at council that our cycleway network that we've adopted this year, so 147 k's of cycleways, a cycleway network across the whole city, that's straight out of Europe. You know, that is that is going to totally change the way that we look at our city, the way that we plan, the way that we plan neighbourhoods. There are really good contemporary examples in the world that we can take note from and that's undoubtedly the direction that we're moving in as a country I would say. And uh, just finally um, you know if one of those homeowners in Mount Vic or Thorndon who came up to you as um, their councillor and said hey I bought into this neighbourhood with the expectation that I'd be surrounded by lots of other villas and people like me and uh, I didn't vote for that and I didn't spend my money on this. And now you want to put up a three-storey house right next to me and, and remove any rights I have to, to object to the resource consent. How does that seem fair? I guess, I guess I'd say to them there are also lots of people who voted in the elections in 2019 who really want urgent action on the housing crisis. And this is one big way that we can impact that. And I would also say that there are probably more people living in unhealthy, mouldy, damp, cold flats. There are families living in those conditions. There are probably more people who are being screwed over by the housing market than there are people who are benefiting from it. And that's wrong. And cities are and need to be diverse representative places where there are ample opportunities for everybody. We can't look at cities as stagnant things that provide value for a few. You know, we can't maintain historic architecture forever because there are more important needs 
and we will realise that our city will be better off for making room for more people because we will be more rich culturally, economically, socially, environmentally, in every single way. So it's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, it's an exciting time and it will make our city way cooler. Brilliant. Tamitha, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Now we talk to Wellington Regional Councillor Thomas Nash, who's all in favour of intensification and public transport. I asked him, what did he think of this big change? Good announcement. I mean, we we need way more homes. And the truth is that in some places, councils uh, have been holding back the development of new homes. Um, but the next question is, what else do we need to put in place to get the best out of these new planning rules. So go for it. Tell us what's the, the missing links that would make this thing work. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I'd say missing links. I mean, you can't do everything in one policy announcement, so I wouldn't say it's a missing link in this particular policy announcement, but things that need to be done are around public housing. I think um, this is going to be good for some landowners and developers because they will get more out of their existing uh, land plots and you know, that's going to be great for them. But I think we need to we need to think about how this will map over into the public housing space and uh, how public housing can be can be facilitated you know more generally. Um, the transport stuff, we're going to need a whole lot more public transport and active transport policies to be put in place if we want to have uh, people living in higher density priority space on the roads for public transport and active transport. So I think that's important. I think one thing as well is, yeah, quality. Quality of uh, the new residential developments. There's, I think everybody would agree there, if we look at the most recent residential developments we've seen around the country, there is a variety of uh, quality. And I think we need to be going towards a much higher standard of quality uh, in terms of the livability, uh, the durability, um, low embodied energy in the building, uh, low energy requirements from people who are in the building, so high thermal performance. And I think also universal design. It's, it's, it's great having lots of three-storey terraced housing along transport routes, but if those don't have lifts, if they're not accessible, then that's excluding straight away a whole bunch of people. What are the risks here that the council say, yeah, you can direct us to allow all these houses to be built to increase the density, but that also means we need to increase the size of our pipes and we need to have more buses and um, we need to have more green spaces to go with this extra intensification and we don't have the money and you're not allowing us to borrow more because you've set some restrictions on our borrowing limits. So, now, nah. <laughs> what do you reckon? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think all of those things will be going through the minds of senior folks and councils all around the country. Obviously, on the three waters, the government is saying, well, we're going to take those away anyway, because we think we've been failing on those. I mean, you can see that there is a strong will within government to, to provide more borrowing capacity. I mean, one of the bottom lines in the three waters reforms is balance sheet separation and increasing the, the borrowing capacity for Three waters infrastructure. So you, you mentioned transport, you mentioned green space. So on transport, well, yeah, councils are going to say, and they and, and we certainly will say as Greater Wellington, that yes, you need to, you, you, the government needs to massively invest in 
more public transport. And that includes, you know, more buses, more bus drivers, better paying conditions for bus drivers. That should be a, a, a national standard. Uh, we need way more vehicles, and, you know, electric vehicles. They should be nationally procured, really, and they should be around the country, um, not just in the tier one councils that are that are considered through this policy, but, but all around the country. So, But I think, you know, if you look at the emissions reduction plan consultation document, you can see that in there. They, the transport stuff, they they know, and I feel like the the transport minister Michael Wood, he's he's sort of on on top of that. So hopefully that will be reflected in the in the budget bids. But yeah, I think the budget bids next year. Brian Robinson, he said next year's budget will be a climate budget. Well, that that's going to be crucial to kind of unlocking the potential of these new planning rules that the government is, is pushing through with national support. They're still facing the um, restrictions of the Public Finance Act, which say that uh, aside from crises, the government's core role is to reduce government debt, which means that it's impossible to invest and borrow heavily in um, climate or housing infrastructure that delivers um, returns over a very long period because the Public Finance Act simply says, get debt down now. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, I think, I think like you, that those rules in the Public Finance Act are totally counterproductive to a thriving society that is fit for purpose in the 21st century, and that should be changed. And I don't think it's unreasonable to consider that that could be changed. I guess there's also the emissions trading scheme revenue, which has, I think, reasonably significantly been hypothecated for emissions reduction activities. You know, that's that's revenue that can all go towards exactly the sorts of things we were talking about there in terms of massively scaling up public and active transport infrastructure. So just finally, what would you say to um, your constituents who, you know, rock up and say, um, I didn't vote for... Uh all of these extra people living next to me. I just wanted a quiet life in a suburb close to town with a car park with some backyard that my kids can run around in. And I didn't vote for all these extra people and all this change. I just want things to stay as they are. It's quite nice for me. Thank you very much. Yeah, well, I think I said don't vote for me. Um, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, you know, I did, I did run when I ran. I ran very explicitly. Uh, with, you know, I didn't hide any of my policies. And um, I, think, I think there's a, there's a good amount of support in Wellington, um, where I am, for these sorts of things. But, you know, maybe I wouldn't be that. Maybe I wouldn't be that sort of black and white. I think I would. I, would, I guess, you know, change is hard. And if you've got a if you've got a life which you're used to, you've built up, um, yeah, it's it's disruption is never really welcome. Uh, so I think we've got to be sensitive to that. But things are going to change one way or another, and it's a question of whether we make those changes uh, consciously or whether we are faced with abrupt emergency style decisions that will be more expensive, will be more disruptive, and will be worse for everybody. So, I, I, you know, I still feel like there's some scope left for good decisions to be to be made in a, in a good way. Thomas Nash there, a Wellington Regional Councillor. After the break, we'll speak to one of the architects of this historic deal, Nicola Willis, who is the National Party's housing spokesperson. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. 
Here's Kiwi Bank economist Sabrina Delgado on the current grim status of the global and local economy. Globally, economic output and activity is slowing. Higher interest rates are weighing heavily on demand and crushing activity. It's not pretty, but it's what's needed to bring down inflation. Here in Aotearoa, the outlook is soft at best. Our impressive surge in net migration helps lift activity, but still the economy is weakening under the weight of the Reserve Bank and a softening global backdrop. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Can you tell us how this came about? Because mm. this is unusual. It is. It's a pretty historic day and I think pretty special. It's certainly something I'm pleased to have been part of. Um, the, the longer background here is that National has for some years pointed to New Zealand's land use restrictions and restrictive planning laws and uh, burdensome consenting requirements as one of the drivers of our housing shortage and our housing affordability issues. In government, we couldn't get the numbers for RMA reform. Uh, in opposition, uh, we have offered to Labour at various points to work with them in a bipartisan way to do RM reform. At the beginning of the year, Judith Collins wrote to the Prime Minister to say, yes, you are doing RMA reform, but that's too far to wait given the scale of the housing emergency. We need to take urgent measures ahead of that happening and we're prepared to work with you in a constructive way to deliver those changes. Um, the Prime Minister wrote back. We then went on to present uh, a, a template for how change could occur in the form of a member's bill. And at the end of June, Ministers Parker and Woods wrote to me and Scott Simpson uh, and said, We've considered your proposals and yes, we agree with you that this is a major cause of our housing problems and we would like to work with you on a bipartisan solution. Uh, and so from there, negotiations and discussions ensued uh, until we got to where we are today. So you probably started with different positions. Um, what would you have liked to have seen? I think we uh, started with actually a shared motivation. I think it was important to us that any final uh, proposal included both densification but would also allow councils to fast track Greenfield's development through a streamlined planning process where they wanted to do that and this proposal allows for that. There wasn't much discussion in the press conference about the Greenfields aspect. Mm. Can you tell us what the changes would allow? 
Well, at a high level, uh, this proposal, that this bill today, fast tracks the national policy statement for urban development. It bring for, brings forward the timelines for it, and it creates a streamlined process by which to put those changes in place, bringing it forward to 2022 uh, for notification, uh, and then making sure that those are then in place without a long, drawn-out appeals process. Part of what the national policy statement does is it says to councils, uh, you need to look favourably upon applications for new development. So if councils wanted to incorporate plan changes for new greenfields development, they could do that via the NPS on a fast track now, thanks to the faster timeline. I mean, how does this change the um, existing blockages around infrastructure funding, which the councils have used effectively to block development, particularly with greenfields, by you know, um, saying we can't afford these big pipes and roads, or if that's going to happen, you're going to have to pay the whole lot, and here's a completely ruinous development development contribution, which means it never happens. Well, it's important to remember that where new dwellings are created, that is a new rateable income stream for councils. So there is some revenue when new dwellings are built, but I think that national is the first to acknowledge uh, that there should be, um, in the medium term, some changing to infrastructure financing for local authorities. That is work that Christopher Luxon and I are doing together. That's not the focus of today's announcements, but that is an area where National anticipates doing more work and where we would like to see additional changes in the future. There was a question about um, ratings uplift capture. What's your view on using that to help pay for infrastructure, particularly for greenfield stuff? Because it does seem particularly painful that um, landowners, many of whom drip feed their land out, make stonkingly large tax-free capital gains whenever things are rezoned. And one of the complaints about the special housing areas was that you know landowners were able to use this backdoor process to essentially gift themselves huge increases in land values. Well, I think the distinctive characteristic of today's announcement is that it allows intensification to occur over much broader brush areas. So instead of just constricting it to walkable catchments or public transport nodes, it says actually any property owner today in one of these uh, major urban areas will have a default right to build with a medium residential zone. Uh, so what that means in practice is we're not just talking about a small group of people who potentially get value uplift, but we're creating multiple choices across our cities about where intensification can occur. I don't expect that overnight every homeowner in Wellington and Auckland is going to say, right, I'm going to bowl the villa and put up three townhouses. But over time, people will make that choice. And that's to the benefit of all of us. That's to the benefit of the existing homeowner ex exercising their property right. And that's to the benefit of future homeowners will who will have more choices about where they live uh, in urban areas, closer to work, uh, and hopefully with some more affordable housing options. In Auckland, Wellington, the growth cities, three townhouses on a section close to town is, you know, I'm guessing a million dollars plus. That's probably a cheap one. <laughs> I mean, what does this do for people who are looking for a smaller studio and one and two bedroom departments? Because usually they come in four, five, six storey blocks. Well, this will create a lot more choices. I envisage a range of scenarios occurring. One is um, potentially you have a boomer couple who decide that they'd actually quite like to stay living in their current community, but they need more of an income in retirement. 
So they get rid of the rundown villa and they replace it with two lovely modern townhouses, one which they live in, one which they either sell for a nest egg or rent out as a home and income. Uh, that, that's one option. Another option is the family who have uh, teenagers or people in their 20s who want to come and go from home. Well, this would allow them to put a uh, proper granny flat out the back with a kitchenette, with a bathroom. I envisage scenarios where people want some more income, so they put a granny flat at the front of their section and get some income from that. So that works for the property owner today, but it also means people who are looking for somewhere to rent close to town, looking for somewhere small and affordable to buy, will in future have more options. So previously you've got one house, maybe two cars on a section. Now you've got three houses, six cars on a section. What do you say to all the neighbours who say, oh, there's not going to be any room to walk or drive because there's going to be so many cars parked outside these townhouses? Well, I'd remind people that the driver of those increased amenity needs is actually more people. It's not the more houses. And in many situations right now, we know in our cities we actually have overcrowded living conditions where you've already got six, seven, 10, 12 people cramped into one dwelling. Well, th these changes will allow actually for those people to live across more dwellings in the medium term. So this isn't necessarily adding a lot more people overnight, but it is adding more dwellings. Second, when it comes to these infrastructure issues in terms of how car parking is managed, um, how amenity is managed, we would expect that local authorities will react. Um, you know, I'm a Wellingtonian. We're pretty used to having permitted car parking in many parts of our city. Uh, and those sorts of approaches to rationing car parking can occur because we need homeowners and potential renters and potential homeowners to go in with eyes open and to know, well, if I get this granny flat, there may not be a car park, or if there is going to be a car park, it comes with a cost. It's all about providing choices. If people are informed about their choices and they understand the trade-offs they're making, then they should be able to exercise those choices. Why only three storeys and why only three homes per section? Because, um, you know, you could go much higher and do a lot more houses together. Well, the starting place for this was um, our view that the National Policy Statement on Urban Development should be both brought forward and strengthened. And it's important to remember that the National Policy Statement already envisages further intensification uh, beyond three storeys for areas that are in walkable catchments, that are close to public transport, that are close to amenity and around the CBD. So we do envisage six storeys in lots of places and more intensification than that in other places. Councils have that option with this bill. But what we're saying is there's actually also a flaw to this. There is a bottom line, there is a minimum. At an absolute minimum, you have to allow for three storeys and three dwellings. Fill your boots if you want to do more councils. You can, this bill enables you to do that. But at a minimum, we are gonna require the three storeys, the three dwellings. What would you say to those national voters who are living in leafy, single-storey, single-home suburbs close to town who were carved out of the Auckland Unitary Plan or are currently protected from the Wellington District Plan by these heritage overlays, which look like they're going to be removed? What would you say to them who say, you know, I, I didn't vote you in to allow all these people to come into my suburb and why should I be paying the extra rates involved and paying for the infrastructure that goes with it? 
I'd say to you, you go ahead and keep your home and garden if that's the lifestyle you like and that's the way you like to live. Nothing in these proposals will make you change that. And I know that you are invested in ensuring that your kids and your grandkids maybe have the aspiration of owning their own home. And I know you're invested in actually having a community where we don't have rampant housing inequality growing so that we have thousands of families raising their kids in motel rooms. That's not the New Zealand we want. If we want to address our housing challenges, we have to allow our cities to grow up and to grow out. Yes, there will be some special character exemptions. Councils have provision within the national policy statement under a series of qualifying matters to exempt some areas. But they have to prove the case for that. Because actually, we all benefit when we have communities where more people can afford to build their own home. And that's what National's chosen to prioritise in supporting this legislation. And what about um, those citizen and ratepayers um, councillors who are affiliated or connected, it's probably too strong a word, but <laughs> aligned maybe with the National Party, what are you saying to them? Because they could decide to take a different view and use their positions within councils to um, overturn or block development like this. Well, it's up to individual councillors to decide their positions on these issues and um, this is one of the great benefits of National not having had our party represented at local government level. We don't bind others to these decisions. But what this legislation does, which is really important, is it provides central government leadership. So actually, some of these issues can't be bargained down at council. We are setting minimum requirements because actually we do think it's for government to take leadership on these issues and say, we have to say yes to more housing. We've got to stop allowing the RMA to be weaponised against people wanting to build more dwellings. And we have to give power back to people rather than giving it all to town planners. That's the leadership we're taking together with Labor uh, and it will be for councillors to implement that in a thoughtful way. Just finally, um, uh, David Seymour has said this impinges on people's property rights, you know, we'll see three-storey townhouses blocking out the sun and, you know, um, suddenly a suburb I thought was safe from development isn't safe anymore. This is um, a basic breach of property rights. What would you say to them? This policy enhances property rights by giving people greater rights to build on their own land. I would encourage David Seymour to more closely read this proposal. Because if, as he has said previously, he is on the side of those wanting to see more affordable housing in New Zealand, he simply must support these measures. Without these measures, we won't be able to deliver modern cities that have a range of affordable homes for the next generation. He represents a party that has historically talked about getting government out of the way, cutting regulation, cutting red tape. This proposal does exactly that. It gives freedom back to property owners in the market to put houses where there is demand for them. Uh, it's about getting government out of the way. Nicola Willis there from the National Party, really confident this will get lots of houses built, but will it? We talk now to Jeremy Couchman, who's a senior economist at Kiwi Bank, who studies housing supply and what's happening with prices to find out what this big deal might mean. Oh. 
Welcome to Jeremy Couchman from Kiwi Bank, an economist who likes to look at the housing market. And no doubt, Jeremy, you saw the announcement from the government. What do you think this might do for housing supply in our fastest growing cities? I um, was certainly caught off guard by this announcement. It's, it's a bipartisan decision. Uh, they're obviously quite rare. So it was certainly was a bit of a surprise. I thought it was encouraging to see that uh, a, a crisis like housing um, you know, requires something large, uh, a big move to tackle it. Uh, and in my view, I think over the longer term, we should expect to see increase in housing supply. Near term, though, uh, that's, that's a bit more debatable. The uh, government would look to implement this in August next year. Um, so that's quite a quick time frame to start building these houses. Um, and we already know at the moment that the building sector is under a lot of capacity constraints, whether it's labour, uh, whether it's getting materials. So in terms of the near term, I don't know if this would have much of an impact, but certainly longer term, um, this makes it easier for developers to get in and start building the, the houses that we need closer to where we need them. Because there was a, a report out from PwC and Sense Partners that came out with this joint bipartisan announcement, which suggested you could see up to 100,000 houses built that wouldn't otherwise be built uh, in the next potentially eight years. So th- in theory, that extra supply should put some sort of downward pressure on house price inflation, do you think? Yeah, I guess it, it comes down to how quickly those uh, all that supply comes online. Um, but certainly that, that could uh, lead to, to, to falls in house prices. But I think the important thing here is to note that while uh, house price growth may have been lower because of this, so we might still see house price growth, but it would have been lower. I think the important thing here is to recognise that what this should do is actually increase the uh, what economists call the um, the price elasticity of supply of housing. So it means that housing will be, or the supply of housing will be quicker to respond to when we have periods of stronger demand. And I think that's that's really the the key of this policy is to improve that responsiveness because, as we've seen from the last cycle, um, we've just been caught out uh, constantly trying to to increase that supply at the same time we've had massive uh, population growth. And hopefully this will mean we're just more responsive. Could you give us a sense of, you know, how inelastic uh, our supply has become and how it compares with other markets or in the past in New Zealand? That sense that uh, when there is an increase in prices and uh, people see an opportunity to try to fill the gap by building more houses, that they just can't seem to squeeze them out. How much harder has it become to squeeze them out? Uh, It has become uh, very difficult. I mean, uh, if you look at building consent data as an indicator of of supply response, if you go back to the 1970s in New Zealand, you had, uh, I think at the peak, it was uh, maybe 10 to 12 additional consents issued per 1,000 people. Um, Now, um, we're only just starting to get up to, I think it might be six or or just above that, um, which is very high uh, compared to relative history or recent history, um, but it's still at a time when we've had population growth uh, just extraordinarily high. We just it just still hasn't had that response that we've seen even back in the seventies when we were churning out a lot of houses. What do you think's going on here? Because you know we've got um, fancy diggers and uh, pneumatic nail guns and um, lots of high vis. Surely um, we're better and faster at building houses now than we were in the seventies when you know people were wearing singlets and they never put any sunscreen on. 
Yeah, that's true. I think the the big difference here is uh, this is uh, a development that we've seen in a lot of developed economies around the world that we've had, I guess, the property-owning part of the population. They've uh, become accustomed um, to to owning these properties, to growing up and maybe raising families in these uh, in these suburbs, these parts of the cities, uh, and uh, they've become, I guess, quite resistant resistant to change in certain areas. So there's been, um, even though there's been moves to um, help development of houses along the line, um, there's always been resistance in terms of in New Zealand through the Resource Management Act to try and stop development where it may uh, impinge on some people's, um, I guess, perceived expectation of, of where they live. So. So that's certainly been something that's changed, and I think that is a big key here, uh, which is um, has slowed down development. Um, there's other areas you could say uh, we've had improved housing standards, and that's for for the good, uh, for for the better, to have warmer, drier homes. Um, so it might mean that cost of construction or time to construct might might be longer than otherwise would be the case. But uh, but yeah, the, I think the key thing here is the the restriction in terms of development over time. And uh, just looking at the um, investment that often goes around a house, you know, you can plonk a house yep. down, but it needs to connect up to the pipes and have the right footpaths and people need to think about parking and parks and all of that sort of thing. Um, what, what constraints are out there you know, what are the issues around infrastructure funding for councils and governments? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, one of the areas, I think, that the tricky part of this whole policy. And it's really a question of, you know, how do you fund this? So obviously there will need to be more funding if this is uh, if this is going to go ahead and, and councils are probably looking at it already. But for some councils around the country, I think Auckland in particular, uh, have got issues with coming up against debt constraints. So they can't necessarily borrow much more to be able to fund this. And then where you've seen elsewhere, for example, special purpose vehicles, where people that are building, say, a new subdivision, then the owners of those houses can can actually pay towards part of that infrastructure. How do you, uh, in an existing suburb, how do you pass those costs on to uh, everyone? Um, there's probably going to be a lot of reluctance within those existing suburbs for that, to, to have those costs passed on. So that, that's a, a big question mark. Um, um, having more dense... Uh, dense housing in existing suburbs that are close to where people want to be, actually you get better use out of infrastructure. Um, while the infrastructure might not be up to scratch now and you'll need to upgrade it, once it is upgraded you will get um, uh, overall be much uh, less costly to do it that way because you're not having to run pipes for, for kilometres and kilometres out to the fringes of a city you're, and, your, and your transport networks, you don't have to expand them dramatically. You can still run the same transport networks, uh, public transport networks for example, um, and just better use them. And from a climate change point of view, um, the denser your housing closer to the city um, and the more use of uh, cycling and walking and, and buses and the likes, um, the fewer the climate emissions than something out at the, at the fringe. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing to consider as well around climate change is making sure that if you are developing or intensifying that you are developing in areas that perhaps aren't necessarily susceptible to, to climate change because we know regardless of what we do now to fight climate change there will still be changes uh, in terms of the climate and the weather uh, that we, that will be experienced um, maybe in coastal areas or low-lying areas so so yeah that, that also has to be uh, thought through as well. Jeremy Couchman, uh, an economist with uh, Kiwi Bank in Wellington, great to have you on board when the facts change, thank you. Jeremy Catchman there from Kiwi Bank. And I'd like to thank 
Jeremy, Tamitha Paul and Thomas Nash in Wellington, also Nicola Willis in Wellington for talking to us about this deal. I'm Bernard Hickey and that was When the Facts Change, a weekly podcast on the Spinoff Podcast Network brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank. And please do hit the subscribe button on your platform of choice because it's weekly. We want to make sure we get into your systems and ears every week. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spinoff Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.